Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret's just-arrived collection of swim and other sun-ready silhouettes. Pack your bags with new styles from the Very Sexy collection, like the made-to-be-seen Very Sexy push-up bra in on-trend hues like green, citron, and black shine. Rewind to the future with the VS Archive Swim Collection, inspired by Victoria's Secret's classic looks from the 90s and early 2000s. Plus, mix and match with their wide range of bikini tops and bottoms to find your dream suit. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com. Timons Direct has done it again. This month only, get ready for an offer you can't resist. Buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. That's right, a stunning diamond tennis bracelet at no extra cost. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. So hurry into Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet will not last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. There's nothing better than feeling comfortable in your own shoes. And that doesn't mean flopping down on the couch with bunny slippers. Maybe you're a parent raising a little rock star. Or a tech nomad working from anywhere and jumping from one thing to the next. Whoever you are, Allbirds wants you to be comfortable in your actual shoes, too. Their wool runners, pipers, and loungers are designed for a level of coziness that makes you feel like you can do anything. You might even forget you're wearing them. And their shoes are so stylish, they go perfectly with a wear-whatever-I-want attitude. Allbirds is all about loving Mother Nature, too, because no one wants to leave a bad footprint. Each shoe is carefully crafted from natural materials that tread lightly on our planet. From ZQ-certified merino wool to a bouncy midsole made from sweet foam, the world's first carbon-negative EVA material made from sugarcane. So get comfortable in your shoes. Get to know the wool runners, pipers, and loungers at allbirds.com. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. It has long been accepted that time as we know it, or at the very least, in the sense that we experience it, is not what it seems. Or, as Albert Einstein put it, the past, the present, and the future is but a stubborn, persistent illusion. It would seem that we have long been mesmerised by the notion of travelling through time, whether it be to right a past wrong or merely to escape our present reality. But it wasn't until Einstein's special relativity introduced us to the tantalising concept of space-time and the fourth dimension that such notions were given mathematical credibility. No longer was time a mere subjective unit of measurement, but suddenly we were invited to imagine it as a space within which we might move. A theory that, as the earlier quote suggests, did away entirely with any notion of past, present and future. Or to be clearer, as physicist Max Tegmark notes, time is not an illusion, but the flow of time is 
For much in the way that matter may appear differently from one observer to the next, so too, according to Einstein, does time. Incidentally, although the concept of space-time is often linked with Einstein, it was actually his teacher, Hermann Minkowski, who first proposed the idea back in 1908 in a paper titled Space and Time. Remarkably, author Edgar Allan Poe is believed to have come to the same realisation himself as far back as 1848, writing in an essay titled Eureka that space and duration are one. Certainly, it is an area that has been well explored in fiction. The oddly unsettling 1970s television show Sapphire and Steel and Joan Lindsay's haunting and mesmeric Picnic at Hanging Rock are two of my favourite accounts of one such temporal corruption that is equal parts fascinating and terrifying. The notion of the time slip. You're listening to Unexplained, and I'm Richard McLean Smith. To paranormal researchers, the fabled time slip is considered to be the rarest of all documented paranormal experience. The most well-known account of such an event being the Mobile Jordan incident. The event is alleged to have occurred on Saturday, August 10th, 1901, at the Palace of Versailles in France, when two British women, visiting the palace on a day trip, claimed to have found themselves inexplicably transported back to the late 18th century to be surrounded by palace courtiers and even, at one point, crossing paths with Marie Antoinette. The women, Charlotte Mobley and Eleanor Jordan, were both well-educated and had no obvious reason to fabricate the events and published a book of their account in 1911, which was predictably met with much ridicule. There are two accounts of alleged time slips that took place in Britain in the 1950s. The writer and long-time member of the Society of Psychical Research, Andrew Mackenzie, documented both the events in his 1997 book, Adventures in Time. For Mackenzie, the accounts were nothing less than two of the most convincing that he had ever come across. Mysteries that remain to this day unexplained. On Monday, January the 2nd, 1950, as the new decade entered its third day, so too did the New Year's celebrations, as is customary in Scotland. In a small house in the town of Brecon, in the eastern county of Angus, a cocktail party is coming to an end. Sensing that the party was beginning to wind down, one of the guests, 55-year-old Miss Elizabeth Smith, decided to call it a night. It was, after all, getting late, and Elizabeth wasn't much relishing the ten-mile drive back to her house in Leatham. After saying goodbye to her friends, she collected her small terrier dog that she had brought with her, and together they climbed into her car in preparation for the journey home. It had been a relatively mild winter, but the last few days had seen a light dusting of snow along much of the east coast. Snow that by nightfall on the 2nd had turned steadily to ice. Undeterred, Elizabeth switched on the engine and pulled off into the night. A short time later, not more than two miles outside of Brecon, Elizabeth lost control of the car, span off the road 
and plummeted straight into a ditch. Miraculously, neither Elizabeth nor her small canine companion were harmed, but the car was completely written off. Relieved and more than a little dazed, with the temperature outside steadily dropping, Elizabeth knew she had only two options. Return to her friend's home or strike out on the eight-mile journey back to Leatham. Deciding on the latter, Elizabeth gathered her things and together with her dog, she set out on the long walk home. At first, Elizabeth was at ease taking the deserted country lane back towards her village. She felt safe with her dog by her side, cheerily keeping her company. But it was hard to ignore the strange sense of foreboding that is wont to arise when you are out in the wilderness with no light to be seen, and even the moon declines to reveal itself. Such was the thickness of cloud, it was difficult even to make out the contours of the surrounding fields, save for the dark silhouettes of hedgerows and trees dotted about like thick, formless shadows. It wasn't long before the eerie quietude of the night started to gnaw away at her nerves. So much so that Elizabeth neglected to take the well-trodden shortcut through the field. Better to stick to the open country, she thought, than venture nearer to the ominous-looking woodlands to her left. With the temperature dropping even further, Elizabeth and her little dog ploughed on gallantly towards their destination. Roughly two miles from Leatham, Elizabeth's dog began to tire, leaving Smith with little choice but to pick him up and carry him on her shoulders. Less than half a mile later, Smith was hugely relieved when she was able to make out the distant rise of Dunnichen Hill, a clear sign that she was almost home. And so it was, with little surprise, when she saw a few small lights in the distance. Only there was something odd about them. Firstly, it was strange, she thought, why so many lights would be on when it was almost two o'clock in the morning. But what was perhaps even more unusual was that the lights, unless she was mistaken, appeared to be moving. A short time later, not only had the number of lights increased dramatically, but she soon realised, with some surprise, that each of the lights were being held aloft in the air by strange shadowy figures. The lights were, in fact, flaming torches, being held aloft by men wearing dark tunics with roll collars and tights. What was also odd was the manner in which they were moving. Rather than walking straight across the field, they seemed to be skirting in a semicircle around the bottom of it. But then the figures disappeared, only to be replaced by another set of men in the field to her left, who were this time close enough for her to notice that the torches seemed to be strangely red in colour. At this point, Elizabeth's dog, sensing the peculiarity of the occasion, began to bark, much to Elizabeth's alarm. Trying to ignore the strange men, she hurried on towards home, but the most extraordinary vision was yet to come. Not long after, a third set of men appeared, even closer than the previous groups. She could see them clearly now as they made their way through the field, just like before, with their burning torches held aloft. But they weren't merely marching, as she had first thought. This group seemed to be moving much more diligently 
and with purpose throughout the field. Elizabeth wondered why it was that they would stop from time to time, bringing the torches close to the ground. And that was when she saw them, the bloodied corpses of the dead. It was as if she had wandered into the aftermath of some great and ancient battle. The field was littered with them. The men with torches were clearly scouring the ground to see if anyone was left alive, turning the bodies over in the darkness to check for signs of life. Smith and her dog eventually made it home safe and sound, but unsurprisingly, the ghosts of those dead never truly left her. However, it wasn't until a further 20 years later that Smith's account of the extraordinary event was formally recorded. The task was taken up by 54-year-old Dr James McCarg, a much-respected and well-loved psychologist and contemporary of Andrew McKenzie at the Society for Psychical Research. In the intervening years, Smith had come to the realisation that what she had seen had indeed something to do with an ancient battle once fought on the very land she had walked across. After spending some considerable time interviewing Smith, McCarg was left with little doubt that she had somehow slipped back in time and witnessed the aftermath of a brutal and bloody battle known as the Battle of Necton's Mere. The battle occurred in 685 AD between the Picts, an enigmatic tribal people from what is now the north and east of Scotland, and the Northumbrians. Fifty years previously, the Kingdom of Northumbria, led by King Edwin, had risen to become the most powerful in all of the British Isles. But by the end of the 7th century, the kingdom had diminished considerably, thanks largely to the disastrous defeat they suffered at the hands of the Picts at the Battle of Necton's Mere. McCarg found Smith, who at one time had been the president of her local Women's Rural Institute, to be an extremely credible witness, concluding that her recollections of the night's events were at the very least genuine to her. And a few elements of the story stood out in particular. Smith's insistence that the torches had been read was puzzling at first, until Andrew Mackenzie later made a discovery that was believed to have not been known by Smith at the time. He discovered that torches of that era were often made from the resinous roots of Scots fir, which in their natural state do indeed have a distinctive red colour. McCarg was especially intrigued by Smith's description of the movement of the men, who seemed to be walking in a curve around the field. And so it was with some surprise when he discovered that back in the 7th century, the field had in fact been a small lock that had later been drained and turned into farmland. His startling conclusion was that perhaps the apparitions had merely been walking around the lock to get to their fallen comrades. This revelation, he believed, was ultimate proof of Smith's story, since it demonstrated that the apparitions must have come from a time before the lock had been drained. Are you always taking care of your family? Do you often take care of others and not yourself? Now it's time to take care of yourself, to make time for you. You deserve it. Teladoc gives you access to a licensed therapist to help you get back to feeling your best, to feeling like yourself again. With Teladoc, you can speak to a licensed therapist by phone or video. Therapy appointments are available seven days a week from 7am to 9pm local time. 
If you feel overwhelmed sometimes, maybe you feel stressed or anxious, depressed or lonely, or you might be struggling with a personal or family issue, Teladoc can help. Teladoc is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy to change counsellors if needed, for free. Teladoc Therapy is available through most insurance or employers. Download the app or visit teladoc.com forward slash unexplained podcast today to get started. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C dot com slash unexplained podcast. Our second tale takes place only seven years later in the county of Suffolk in the southeast of England. It is the birthplace of the infamous Witchfinder General, Matthew Hopkins, whose reign of terror in the 1640s resulted in many local women being murdered due to egregious accusations of witchcraft. Nowadays, however, it is perhaps better known for its tranquil wetlands and rich arable soil. It is a county that echoes with birdsong and the music of Rafe Vaughan Williams, a place where the earth is as dark and rich as the sky is wide, a place perhaps best summed up by W.G. Seabold's exquisite travelogue, The Rings of Saturn. And so it is to that place that we now travel. It is Sunday morning in October 1957. Up above, the skylarks ascend, chirrup, whistle and shake, as below them, three young boys, equipped with a map and a compass, are steadily making their way across the countryside. They are taking part in an orienteering exercise organised by the Royal Navy Cadets. The boys, who are all 15 and brand new recruits, are William Lang from Perthshire in Scotland, Ray Baker from London and Michael Crowley from the county of Worcestershire. Today, their task is to locate a specific waypoint, record their findings and then return to base camp to report back to their superiors. Finally, after a few miles of trekking, the boys were excitedly homing in on their mysterious destination. They had been coming up a slight rise when they first heard the sound of church bells. As they approached the top of the hill, they noticed smoke rising from chimneys and the spire of a church towering prominently above a small village. As they finally made it over the hill, the rest of the small community was revealed to them below. And with the boys in agreement that this was indeed where they were supposed to be, they continued their journey down into the village. But as they got nearer, something very peculiar happened. Partway into the village was a small stream that flowed over the road. As they approached it, they became aware that something wasn't quite right. It was Michael who noticed it first. The silence. Only moments ago, the church bells had been ringing and the sound of birdsong had filled the air. But now, as they entered the village, the place was eerily silent, save for the gentle trickling of the stream. As they carried on over the ford, William noted that even the ducks seemed unmoved by their arrival. And as for any sign of people, the place was completely deserted. It was then that they noticed the trees. Only a few minutes earlier, they were surrounded by a countryside decorated with the reddish golden browns of autumnal leaves. But the leaves on the trees in the village were anything but. Here, the leaves appeared to be vibrantly green 
almost as if it was springtime. As the boys walked on, a strange picture was beginning to emerge. All of the houses looked as if they were from another age, hand-built and slightly crooked in design. Some were timber-framed, and others looked positively medieval. Looking around, they saw no sign of streetlights or even aerials on the houses. There was also no smoke coming from the chimneys as they had seen before entering the village, and absolutely no sign of the church that had been so visible from the hill. What's more, the wind had completely dropped, with not even the leaves rustling in the trees. And there was no sign of anybody, anywhere. The boys made their way over to a building with a green door and a large front window split into smaller panes that had not been washed in some time. They pressed their noses to the glass. Just like the rest of the village, the shop was deserted. But at the back of the room, hanging on meat hooks, were the skinned carcasses of three large cows. The meat, green and mouldy, having long ago turned putrid. Unnerved by what they had seen, and somewhat in a daze, the boys soon found themselves staring through the window of another building, but again found no sign of life inside. The rooms completely emptied of all furniture. Ray and Michael suggested knocking on some of the doors, but William refused to move. Ever since entering the village, a strange feeling had fallen over him. It was an overwhelming sense of sadness and the unmistakable sensation that they were being watched by unseen and unfriendly eyes. The three boys hurriedly made their way back up the track to the top of the hill. Finally satisfied that they had reached a safe distance, the boys turned back and were amazed to find the village just as they had seen it before. The smoke was again rising from the chimneys and the church spire stood tall and proud. The autumnal colours had returned to the trees and once more the sound of the bells and birdsong could be heard all around. A short time later, the boys returned to base camp and relayed their experiences to their sceptical superiors. Despite their baffling description, the petty officers confirmed the boys had indeed reached their designated waypoint. What they had supposedly seen was the picturesque village of Kersey. It wasn't until 30 years later that Michael Crowley and William Lang, who by then were both living in Australia, contacted Mackenzie and relayed their extraordinary story. A few years later, Mackenzie revisited the village with Lang and together they retraced just what exactly had occurred that day. Much like Dr McHarg had been with Miss Smith in Scotland, Mackenzie was impressed by Lang's sincerity and the detail of his description of the events. Mackenzie ultimately came to the conclusion that what the boys had experienced was not the Kersey of 1957, but rather the village as it had been in the 1420s, in the aftermath of the Great Plague. Is it really possible that both the young cadets and Elizabeth Smith, and anyone else for that matter, could slip unwittingly into another time. Perhaps not in the manner suggested by Mackenzie, 
But in 2011, one man was to make a remarkable claim that we might all, in a sense, be slipping in and out of time, constantly. In March of that year, a paper was published in the Journal of Personality and Psychology titled Feeling the Future, Experimental Evidence for Anomalous Retroactive Influences on Cognition and Effect. It had been written by a brilliant but controversial social psychologist of Cornell University in the States called Professor Darrell Bem. The paper was extraordinary from its opening line to its mind-boggling conclusion. After all, it isn't often that a paper published in an elite journal begins with a definition of psi, which he described as the anomalous processes of information or energy transfer that are currently unexplained in terms of known physical or biological mechanisms. It is even more of a rarity that a paper would then go on to prove that such phenomena, an area most associated with telepathy, clairvoyance and psychokinesis, might actually be real. The paper presented the results from a number of experiments involving over 1,000 volunteers. One such test was to have the volunteers study a list of words from which they would later be asked to try and recall as many of the words as possible. Having completed this part of the experiment, the volunteers were then given random words from the list that they were then asked to type out as a counterintuitive act of reinforcement. Incredibly, Bem's results seemed to suggest a direct correlation between the words that the students had been able to recall and the words that they were later asked to type out. In essence, Bem had turned the notion of cause and effect completely on its head. In another test, volunteers were shown two curtain graphics on a computer screen, behind one of which was a highly stimulant erotic image. The volunteers were then tasked with selecting correctly which curtain hid the image. Completely random guesses would return a roughly 50% success rate. But amazingly, Professor Bem recorded a 53.1 success rate. The difference may sound minimal, but in statistical terms, it is dramatically significant. What Bem's paper seemed to be saying was that everything we thought we knew about the unidirectional nature of time was a fallacy. Before long, however, there were suspicious rumblings amongst the scientific community. Questions were asked about the validity of BEM's methodology and the lack of any other findings that might link with BEM's extraordinary claims. And ultimately, what distinguishes scientific theory from fact is the reproducibility of the results. In 2012, psychologists Stuart Ritchie, Richard Wiseman and Chris French of the Universities of Edinburgh, Hertfordshire and Goldsmiths, respectively, made an unsuccessful attempt to replicate Professor Bem's findings. Their attempts were repeated in the same year by Jeff Gallick of Carnegie Mellon University, who also failed to replicate Professor Bem's results. It remains to be seen whether Bem's findings will gain a wider credibility. For what it's worth, Bem stands resolutely by his findings. One perhaps more rational, but in some ways no less extraordinary explanation for the bizarre accounts of Elizabeth Smith and the three cadets 
is a phenomenon known as derealization. The experience is thought to be brought on by a dysfunction in the occipital or temporal lobe of the brain. The condition can often leave sufferers with a sense of disassociation from the external world, whereby familiar places suddenly become alien and surreal. Regardless of whether such a condition had afflicted Smith or the young boys, the suggestion brings to mind an intriguing concept that I believe strikes at the heart of our fascination with the notion of travelling back in time. The term hauntology was coined by French philosopher Jacques Derrida in his 1993 book Spectres of Marx, The State of the Debt, The Work of Mourning and The New International. The word is a portmanteau of the words haunting and ontology, the philosophical study of the nature of being. For Derrida, the term is essentially a play on the temporality of ideas, or more precisely, the impossibility of eradicating knowledge or ideas, in this case as they would pertain to Marxist philosophy, once they have been conceived. From the moment they exist, they remain forever a part of our collective knowledge, haunting our perception of both the past and the future. The implication being that only by returning to a time before the idea could we hope to imagine an alternate future unshaped by that idea. And it is this that I believe most resonates with us when fantasising about the possibility of travelling back in time. Not the fantasy that we might exist in a different and more agreeable past, but that by returning to that past, we might realise a different future. What tantalises is the promise that our fate could somehow be changed for the better. This currently being an impossibility, to paraphrase the composer William Bazinski, we find ourselves perversely left pining for futures that can never happen, but continue to haunt us nonetheless. A concept that you might say achieves physical form in the architecture around us, perhaps no more strikingly than in places like the Barbican Centre in London, a place now extant as a literal Ballardian testament to a vision of the future that never materialised. Of course, change for the better, like all things, is a relative term. For example, it is through concepts such as hauntology that we might better understand, at least, the despotic fixation for burning books, or, in the recent case of ISIL, their destruction of ancient cultural artefacts. Such practices form the practical reality of attempts to expunge the past in the hope of creating a different future. The concept of hauntology was reinvigorated in the noughties by a number of cultural theorists eager to apply the term to emergent trends in art and pop culture in particular with regards to the growing sense that Western music, and especially electronic music, had reached an evolutionary cul-de-sac. Perhaps most prominent among them was the writer and theorist Mark Fisher, who saw in the music of artists such as Burial or the groups that perform under the Ghost Box label an attempt to navigate a way out of the cul-de-sac. Fisher also recognised an unsettled nostalgia for the past that in some ways was merely serving to reinvigorate the spectres 
of what those musicians saw as their many lost futures. But what Fisher found most troubling, as mentioned in a piece for the fall 2012 edition of Film Quarterly, was the sense that we were losing the capacity to conceive of a world radically different from the one in which we currently live. That escape from the cul-de-sac was an impossibility. And yet, for those left despondent at this notion, who pine for an escape from an uncertain present, it is worth bearing in mind some of the thoughts of Arthur Kessler as addressed in his seminal work, The Ghost in the Machine. In a concept he refers to as drawback to leap, Kessler demonstrates that not only is the history of evolution littered with cul-de-sacs and dead ends, but that some of the greatest revolutions in science, art and biology were dependent on them. That it isn't until periods of cumulative progress reach their inevitable stagnation that we are left with no alternative but to go back and find a new way out. As exemplified, for example, by the way in which Pablo Picasso's reversal to primitivism enabled him to forge a brand new paradigm in Cubism. So for anyone feeling afraid that the future they invested so much hope in seems to be disappearing before their eyes, worry not that it is the end. Not only might it merely be the drawback before the leap, but also remember that the past, present and future is now. Perhaps those lost futures aren't spectres after all, but real attainable spaces just waiting for you to arrive. All elements of Unexplained are produced by me, Richard McLean-Smith. Please subscribe and rate the show on iTunes and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can reach us online at unexplainedpodcast.com or on Twitter at unexplainedpod. Now it's time to take care of yourself, to make time for you. Teladoc gives you access to a licensed therapist to help you get back to feeling your best. Speak to a licensed therapist by phone or video anytime between 7am to 9pm local time, seven days a week. Teladoc therapy is available through most insurance or employers. Download the app or visit teladoc.com forward slash unexplained podcast today to get started. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C dot com slash unexplained podcast. Thinking of popping the question? Diamonds Direct has an offer you can't miss. This month only, buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. No one provides education, selection, and value like Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet from your friends at Diamonds Direct won't last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. 
Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Your new home journey starts at Fisher Homes, where everything is red, white, and new. Explore exclusive summer savings and start your journey by selecting your ideal home site and your dream community. Choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans and bring your style to life at the Lifestyle Design Center. Are you looking for a quick move-in ready home instead? Fisher Homes has options for those too. Fill out a form to connect with a new home advisor at fisherhomes.com to get started today before the sun sets on summer savings.